This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again when you can have brilliant, hyper-fast, super simple Wi-Fi system with Eero. And now, the second-generation Eero is a tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor. For free overnight shipping to U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com and at checkout select Overnight Shipping and enter FOOL, F-O-O-L. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, February 2nd, and we are talking big tech earnings, Facebook and Apple. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Google Hangouts by senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, what's going on? I'm ready for the weekend. It's been a busy couple of days with these <laughs> earnings releases. Yeah, you know, it's a good thing that you are out on the West Coast because you kind of have a little coverage benefit with these after-hour earnings releases. Yeah, I'm still working usually when they come out. Unlike you guys, where you go, you go home at five o'clock. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we have to put in over for tech companies. You know, we have to put in overtime over here if we if we want to stay up to date on what's going on with the tech earnings news. Meanwhile, this is just a standard work day for you. Yeah, more or less. Well, why don't we talk about what happened with Facebook first? Um, it seemed like a pretty good quarter for the top line, and at a quick glance. The stock seemed to disappoint, but there's there's a lot to unpack with what happened with their net or, uh, with their income this year. Yeah, I mean the top line looks great. Uh, total revenue is up 47, percent which is crazy that a company of this size is still putting up growth rates, um, near, uh, approaching 50. <laughs> percent um, But yeah, I mean I, the numbers that Facebook continues to put up are incredibly strong. So I mean there's been a all sorts of controversy over Facebook's role on impact in society politics, democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not really manifesting in the financials. But don't you worry, listeners, we will touch on it on today's show. Um, I, I mentioned that things are a little surprising. So they posted $1.44 per share in net income. Analysts had been modeling for $1.94 per share. And you think that that's a massive miss. And then you look at actually what happened on the tax side, and those numbers start to make a little bit more sense. Right, so they took a, a pretty big hit on taxes, a $2.3 billion um, hit for deemed repatriation, which is when the government's part of the new tax code is that any foreign earnings that ha- you've been deferring paying taxes on because you don't want to repatriate and pay that the old rate of 35%, you basically have to pay all of it right now. So they took a $2.3 billion hit, or about $0.77 cents per share. So if you back that out, which is a one-time item, and it's you know, tax reform, um, then they actually would have beat. And I mean, with tax reform happening right at the end of the quarter, I don't think the analysts had enough time to really change their estimates to accommodate because this, I mean, it's obviously a very complex issue you know, with a lot of moving parts. But they, you know, they, they, there is a lot of uh, lot going on there, but they would have beat on the bottom line if more for this. Yeah, I think looking at their conference call, they cited that their effective tax rate was like 43% or something like that uh, this past quarter or this past year, just because of that charge uh, being taken. Uh, Moving forward, it's going to be far more favorable. So the long-term effects for Facebook and a lot of these big-time multinationals, uh, definitely positive with the tax bill. Um, We're not 100% sure what's going to be going on with foreign cash exactly because they have yet to file their 10K, right? Right. So as of the end of the third quarter, they had about $12.9 billion in cash, uh, foreign cash. So that's kind of the foreign earnings we're talking about. But it's interesting because they, they basically weren't really planning for this, which is why this, this charge comes up. Uh, and in contrast to Apple, which we'll discuss later in the show, Apple's been deferring tax liability on foreign earnings for over 30 years. <laughs> I was looking <laughs> at their 10K or 10Q. They filed, they've, been, like, they've been accruing this liability 
for literally 30 years, uh, all, all this time. So they're, you know, in contrast, they didn't get surprised by some like big one-time charge because they've more or less been planning for this eventuality uh, for quite some time. And I think it's important to look at scale there, right? We talked about how Facebook has 12.9 billion in cash by foreign subsidiaries. Uh, Apple, I think that number is a little bit closer to 230, 240 billion. So you no, have <laughs> 269 now. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So you we'll, have. We'll, we'll get more on that later. <laughs> you have to be a little bit more deliberate about what you're doing with your cash and your tax liability when you're operating at that scale abroad. Um, Evan. The story of mobile continues for Facebook. Uh, mobile ads comprised 89% of ad revenue, which is pretty incredible. And this is just the ongoing shift to mobile and something that they have just killed. Right. And on a trailing 12-month basis, this mobile ad business is something around $35 billion. And this is really where all growth comes from. Because if you look at the other two kind of main segments of Facebook, which would be like desktop ads, and then this kind of stagnant payment business where they get a cut of fees and stuff like that. Those two businesses are basically flat for and have been flat for many, many years in absolute dollars, whereas ad sales, have, mobile ad sales specifically, have just been skyrocketing. Um, and I think that a lot of it, right, particularly this quarter, has been driven by ad prices. So, you know, increases in ad prices are really helping drive growth as opposed to like ad load or impressions and volume. So for a company that has been as on fire as Facebook has over the last couple of years, you know, we talked about that crazy growth that they've been posting even on the base that they currently have. Um, this might be the first quarter that we're really seeing some uncertainty with this stock. And I think, for me at least, it started in the conference call when they started talking about the users. Yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot of discussion about, and, and also kind of justifiable concern from investors of, you know, Facebook has been has been talking about and announcing this month that they're going to really make some major changes to the newsfeed to prioritize social content from your friends and family, meaningful interactions, as opposed to publisher content. And that's a big uncertainty and risk associated with, you know, what's this going to do to the business? Um, and I think one thing that CEO Sheryl Sandberg uh, said on the call that was really helped reassure investors, and you saw it immediately affect the share price after hours when they reported what she basically was saying like you know we're not doing this because it's positive or negative for revenue we're just doing this because we think it's the right thing and the impact on monetization is quote certainly not clearly negative gonna <laughs> uh, <laughs> have to unpack that a little saying, bit <laughs> hey, don't worry too much about it but i think that did, that did a lot to kind of reassure investors because i mean I mean, any change to the newsfeed, I mean, the newsfeed is Facebook's core product. I mean, that is by far the most important product. So any change you talk about there is going to have you know, potentially big implications on the business. Yeah, the, the thing that I really honed in on with what was going on on the user side, you know, overall, they have 2.1 billion monthly actives. They're absolutely crushing it there. Daily actives at 1.4 billion. But within that U.S. and Canada, that North America segment, which is the most lucrative ad market for digital ads, Daily actives actually declined by 700,000 sequentially. And I think it's the first time that that's happened. And even just anecdotally thinking about what I see with my friends and their Facebook usage, I notice that people are less and less active on Facebook. And I think that a lot of the newsfeed changes that we're seeing are in response to that. You know, they're trying to revive it and make it more a staple of people's day to day lives. Most of that activity seems to be on Instagram now. You know, it's 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 lucky for the business that they also own that property. But I do seem to notice people using their namesake platform a little bit less. Yeah, it's definitely changing. I mean, in terms of the DAU thing uh, decline, they mentioned that this is mostly just a function of the fact that 
the U.S. and Canada and just North America in general has really high penetration of users. So it's kind of becoming a saturated market. So, yeah, it's going to fluctuate a little bit, but um, I don't think it's necessarily something to worry about. Uh, I mean, it is absolutely the most important uh, market, but they've continued to make incredible gains just in terms of monetization that even if the users are still kind of are, are kind of plateauing and be hitting this kind of ceiling, they still have several levers they can pull on the monetization front to where they can still actually milk more money out of that user base. So the comment that got the most people's attention during the conference call came from Mark Zuckerberg, at least in my opinion. And he said, we made changes that reduced time spent on Facebook by an estimated 50 million hours every day to make sure that people's time is well spent. And you look at the after-hours chart of Facebook stock, and they were down about 4% uh, immediately after reporting it as the call went on because people really freaked out about some of the news feed changes that they're making and the idea that we are going to push user experience over profitability because the long-term bet is that that's better for the platform uh, and, and the business results will kind of follow. But when you see a number like 50 million hours, that's a, that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, I think it just ties into this kind of broader topic that's been coming up recently in social media, which is this like kind of subjective distinction between time spent and time well spent. And what constitutes time well spent is going to vary by user. It's extremely subjective and personal. And I mean, the example he was mentioning with, with this 50 million you know, number was they reduced how much people are seeing these kind of viral videos. But I'm sure there are lots of people out there that just absolutely love passively watching viral videos. And maybe they consider that time well spent, but Facebook doesn't. So again, it's just kind of this, it's almost arbitrary. Like what is the difference? Uh, but that's kind of what Facebook is pushing now is this idea of like, you know, we want you to be having more meaningful time. And they, and they believe that passively consuming content, uh, whether it's video, articles, whatever it is, uh, is, is not good for you. And we actually got a listener question on this that was incredibly well-timed, I guess inspired by Facebook's earnings. But Joseph, who is someone who frequently writes into the show and one of my personal favorite listeners, wrote in and said, on the call, Facebook mentioned their, quote, measures of well-being associated with the newest initiative of focusing on healthy engagement. Can you folks sleuth out what their list consists of? And I think it's a great question. I have a couple ideas, but you know they weren't they weren't um, all that uh, elucidative uh, on the on the call. Frankly, they, they didn't really give a lot of details about what they're specifically looking at. Um, Evan, do you have any thoughts on maybe what might go into that calculation for them? Well, you know, since we we're just I was just saying, like I don't think there's any. It's a very subjective thing. I don't think there's any quantitative metrics that they're looking at. I mean, there's been all this debate. I mean, for many years this has been a topic of debate, but more so very specifically in the past, you know few months and year or so but there's this idea that like facebook is bad for mental health uh, you know it makes you does it actually make you more more socially connected with people or does it make you more socially isolated and all these things and i mean on the call he mentioned things like long-term happiness and health and those are obviously not metrics you can <laughs> you can measure um and you know he when he hit uh zuckerberg had an interview with the new york times earlier this month talking about these changes he was just kind of like, you know, we need to make sure that our products are not just fun, but they're good for people. And, you know, he said he wants to make his support him that his kids grow up and think that their father made something good for the world. Um, so I don't think there's going to be any kind of way for us to, as investors, to track what Facebook is looking for, because this, I don't think there's a way to, to measure this type of stuff quantitatively beyond, I mean, so I, I think all it just ties into like mental health, human psychology, and just 
making sure you it's just good for people in that way. Something that I was kind of surprised uh, for management to talk about is, you know, the supposed science of the Facebook newsfeed. And this is Zuckerberg again talking. And he described this idea that, you know, the newsfeed is driven by likes and comments. And it, it's this, you know, algorithm that is geared specifically towards, uh, you know, time spent on site and things like that. He said the reality is that the company has this panel and surveys thousands of people to get a sense of the content that is meaningful to them and then calibrates their feeds to that. And so, you know, I think we were for the longest time assuming that the company was running on this purely calculated, very metric-driven uh, decision tree for what should go into news feeds and, and kind of what the weighting should be. Um, and the reality is it's been this combination of art and science for a very long time. Right, exactly. It's, I mean... And, and, you know, it's so important to their business. And, of course, they're going to keep all of the, the really detailed technical details. It's going to be a very closely guarded secret. It's just like a trade secret. Just like Google's algorithm is incredibly important to its competitive advantages. Facebook's newsfeed algorithms are basically the same thing. My best bet to try to answer Joseph's question here is, you know, we, we talked about how these are kind of uh, soft science things that are a little bit tougher to wrap your head around. I'm sure the company has proxies for them. Um, my my best bet on what that might look like, you know, you think about in the past, um, if someone spent an hour on Facebook scrolling through their feed, just looking at pictures and watching video with no interaction with those posts, that might have been considered a good session because of the amount of time they spent on the site. Now I think they're kind of viewing that as a failure. Uh, they want to see people commenting on each other's posts. They want to people. Sh- see, they want to see people sharing content with their friends, um, maybe messaging people about content they saw. I'm sure that there's going to be stuff with, you know, text mining to see, um, you know, if people saw something in post, you know, did that wind up uh, becoming something they posted later on? I think wall posts and and kind of going back to that. I mean, Evan, do you remember a period when Facebook was you know a lot more prominent in most people's lives where you would write on people's walls? I mean, when was the last time you wrote on someone's wall on Facebook? I, I mean, I'll share. Interesting. I'll share links or things, interesting things on people on a friend's wall sometimes. But as far as like just a text-based message, that's what you text message people for. That's what, <laughs> that's what like iMessenger, Messenger. Um, but so nowadays, yeah, I do think the use case has kind of evolved to where a lot of the times now you're sharing other stuff from the internet on Facebook. Which who knows if what Facebook is that? Does Facebook consider that time well spent or not? I don't know. Is that a meaningful interaction? I mean, these are all so like just mushy concepts. <laughs> but if it connects people, Evan, I think that that's what the company wants. You know, it can still be content-based. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's that they want to uh, use content to kind of inspire community. That That's my best guess. So all the metrics they use as proxies for well-being and things like that are going to be kind of centered around that. Right. Uh, if you are a Facebook investor and you are maybe a little worried about the crossroads that the company is currently at, I have a quote from Mark Zuckerberg that personally put me at ease and I think is kind of important to keep in mind. He said, I always believe that if we do the right thing and deliver deeper value, our community and our business will be stronger over the long term. And to me, Evan, that sounds pretty capital F foolish. Uh, That's exactly what I'd like to hear from a CEO that's long-term thinking. He's been someone that has a three, five, ten-year plan for the longest time and he's continued to execute on it. I'm not too worried. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the... Facebook's very first S1 registration statement when, before they went public. There was a founder's letter from Zuckerberg, and you know he it's pretty long, but at the end of it, his, his, he sums it up. He's like, simply put, you know, we I can't remember exact quote, so if you're curious, go look it up. But <laughs> something about you know, we make money to build better services. We don't build services to make more money. 
which kind of goes to what you're speaking of, you know, like their goal is not to make money. Their goal is to create a social platform to connect the world together and hopefully have a positive impact on social meaningful interactions, whatever. But yeah, the money will follow, which is, you know, incidentally Apple's approach too, which is, Hey, we just mean, mean to make great products and the money takes care of itself later. Way to cue me up for that transition there, Evan. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> we are going to hit Apple earnings on the back half of the show. But before we get over there, I do want to thank our friends over at Eero. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Eero. The single router model just doesn't work for our increasingly high bandwidth world. It's simple physics. Like light waves, Wi-Fi waves don't go through walls well. Imagine asking a light bulb in your living room to light your master bedroom. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android device, and it'll walk you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. Current Wi-Fi routers are really tough to manage and optimize. The Eero app lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand, so you'll know how many devices are connected at any given point, as well as the internet speed that you're getting from your service provider. You can also easily create and share a guest network. Eero is protected with state-of-the-art WPA2 encryption, and because it controls the hardware and the software of your entire network, it ensures you're always secure. Since traditional routers don't push software updates to their customers, they are left vulnerable to cyber attacks. Eero updates automatically so that you do not only have the latest features, but the latest security at all times. Eero has an incredible customer support as well. It's something that the company has really invested in. And now, they're excited to introduce the second-generation Eero and Eero Beacon. Eero home Wi-Fi systems started in early 2016, and since then, they've learned from hundreds of thousands of systems, making them smarter, faster, and more reliable. The new Eero second generation and Eero Beacon allow a customer to build a Wi-Fi system that is more perfectly tailored to their home than ever before. They offer more speed and range in the same high-quality, elegant design people have come to expect. With the addition of the third 5 gigahertz radio, the second generation Eero is now a tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor, which lets customers do more simultaneously in every room of their home. And with the addition of the new thread radio, Eero can connect to low-power devices such as locks, doorbells, other sensors, and more. Expanding your coverage in any room is easy with the Eero Beacon. Simply plug it into a wall and you're covered. Our producer, Austin Morgan, is an Eero user. Austin, what'd you think? I like it. I have it um, in my house and it helps um, reach the basement so I can beat up on some guys on some NHL 18. (laughs) There you go. You want to be able to access your Wi-Fi throughout the house. That's the key. Eero lets you do that. You can add as many Eero beacons as you want. If there's an outlet, there's Wi-Fi. And so you can beat up people in NHL. Yeah, that's how how you do it. (laughs) For free overnight shipping to U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com and at checkout, select overnight shipping and enter FOOL, that's F-O-O-L, to make it free. Thanks to Eero for their support. Okay, Evan, we're talking about Apple. I know that you and I have a reputation when we talk about Apple to get a little bit long-winded. We've spent a decent amount of time talking about Facebook earnings. We're going to try to keep it relatively short here because it's a company we cover a lot. We can get very excited uh, looking at the earnings and trying to keep it succinct. What popped out to you in the company's report this quarter? Well, just to cover kind of the headlines uh, metrics here, revenue was $88.3 billion, which is insane. <laughs> uh, Top the high end of guidance. The high end of guidance would have been 87 uh, gross margin came in at 38.4%, close to the high end. Uh, they sold 77.3 million iPhones, which is actually a 1% year-over-year unit decline. Um, but what they 
but revenue jumped thirteen percent just because these phones are so expensive, right? The iPhone ten is starts at a thousand dollars. iPhone eight and eight plus got thirty and fifty dollar bumps. You know, so we knew that average selling prices were going to go up, and they spiked to almost eight hundred dollars, which is kind of insane. Uh, came in at seven ninety six. Um, Apple also pointed out that their active install base has now reached one point three billion, and that's devices, not users. Uh, so that's up 30% over the past two years, because two years ago, almost to the day, they announced that they had a billion active installed base. So making a lot of progress there, and that, of course, feeds into every other part of the business. Um, but yeah, overall, it, it was a pretty pretty strong report. Yeah, you cited that installed base number, and I think one of the places where it really plays in is with their services business. This is something that people have been paying a lot more attention to over the past couple of years, and the reason being, it's high margin, uh, and, and it's a great business because you already have these people with devices in hand. What does that look like for them as of this most recent quarter? Right. So a year ago, they, they set out, they publicly stated this goal of doubling their services business over the next four years. So here we are a year later, so we get to kind of check in. So for context, a year ago, the services business was at about $25 billion in trailing total revenue. Uh, last quarter, services grew 18% to $8.5 billion. On a TTM basis, it's up to 31 billion. So they are making progress, and yeah, the App Store continues to grow. Number of people actually transacting and buying stuff, and the amount that they're buying, all these numbers are all headed in the right direction. So that's really helping drive this business. Uh, but also, they they've been highlighting paid subscriptions as well, uh, and there are now 240 million paid subscriptions running through the App Store, and that is. <laughs> Recurring revenue, it's high margin revenue. So I mean, it's just that's a great number. That's why they're 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 really proud of this number. It's because and they do almost nothing for that money. You know, I mean, they they just get a cut of it, and all they do is operate the app store. So it's it's a very profitable um, little little part of that business. And and you know, so overall, they're making um, pretty good progress. But they did not give us any updates on how many Apple Music subscribers there are, which I was hoping they were going to, because uh, the last number they gave us was back in September. They said they had thirty million. This month, Spotify said they're up to 70 million, uh, and Spotify is the market leader. So you got, you kind of want to keep an eye on these two companies. But again, Apple didn't give us any updates here. I wonder if, as we get further into 2018, and the rumors of a Spotify uh, direct, direct public offering uh, come to fruition, and we ultimately start seeing some financials for this company as they begin to list. Uh, we might get an update at a very inopportune for Spotify, uh, in an inopportune time for Spotify about what's going on with Apple Music because uh, I could see a lot of people kind of reading the tea leaves with one and uh, you know trying to make some inferences about the other. Maybe that's what they're waiting for is when so they can steal the spotlight. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised. Some big number. That... <laughs> it's well within the realm of possibilities for Apple. Um, we, we talked about uh, tax repatriation and uh, what really what a several decade plan this has been for Apple at this point in the first half of the show. Why don't we briefly touch on that? So Apple's about to cut a check to the US government for $38 billion. Probably not an actual check, but you, know, <laughs> you get the idea. That's got to be one um, of those huge novelty checks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, they've been accruing this expected tax liability for, for quite some time, so they're not getting caught off guard with any one-time charges. But uh, <clears throat> now what they are going to have greater access to, they have $269 billion in foreign cash, and 285 total gross cash. If you back out $110 billion of term debt and then another $12 billion in commercial paper, net cash is at about $163 billion. And CFO Luca Maestri actually said that Apple, over time, wants to bring this net cash position to zero, 
which is a really interesting idea. Um, and of course, the, he means you know, cash roughly equals debt. And the kind of implication there is: Are they going to have some massive capital return, or what's going to like? What are you? How are you going to get that number down to zero over time? And what time frame are we even talking about? Um, so those are kind of obvious questions. But he he didn't really elaborate beyond that. He said they'll give more detail when they report their March quarter earnings, which will be in April or May. So about three months in the future, we'll we'll get some more detail here. Um, but <clears throat> I mean, they have access to all that cash now, and that's going to be a, a pretty you know interesting thing to see what they do with all that money. What for them is the motivation with going to that cash neutral position? Um, because is it really for them that they've been sitting on it for such a long time and maybe caught so much flack for it uh, now that they have it uh, repatriated and can actually you know make acquisitions, buy back shares without taking on more debt, they're going to do that? Or, or, or is it that there is a kind of um, capital allocation strategy here that I'm missing, Evan? I think it's honestly just the simple fact that they have way more than you would ever conceivably need. And I mean, they generate so much cash that despite they've given back hundreds of billions of dollars to shareholders over the past five years. And and they st- as of right now, they have more cash than they started with that time frame. So like <laughs> they're generating so much cash that they've returned a ridiculous amount and they still keep growing. Like it, they just make so much money that they just have literally nothing to do with it. It's just sitting around. It also is even a drag on certain financial metrics. You know, if you think about certain uh, performance metrics that investors look at, like return on assets, return on equity, right? The cash basically inflates the the bottom figure there, and then it makes these metrics look worse. And it's not really doing a lot; it's just sitting around. So, I, I think that it's just an inefficient use of capital having to sit there. Whereas, if they, you know, for example, if they of course, they've been doing these aggressive capital returns, but if they ramp them up even more, then you have some really meaningful earnings accretion to the bottom line if they can retire a bunch of shares and then earnings earnings per share will just continue to skyrocket, which is a good, very good thing for existing shareholders or remaining shareholders because they're going to get a, a greater you know, claim to, to those profits. And I think that that's probably where this has to be going, right? You know, you, you think about Apple and their reputation when it comes to capital allocation. They're really not a company that goes out there and makes a huge, splashy acquisition. They're, they're a company that very diligently manages their capital return program, buys back shares, pays a dividend, but they haven't really made too many big acquisition acquisitions in the past 10 years. Right. I mean, the biggest acquisition historically still is Beats, and that was only about $3 billion. And I mean, in the past several years, they've talked about this idea that, you know, we're, we're, we look at companies of all sizes, but like... They they don't actually make these gigantic blockbuster acquisitions, even though they could easily afford to. But it, I mean, those types of deals have huge risks associated with them. I just don't think Apple Apple likes to play it conservatively. So they kind of reiterated on the call that their M and A strategy hasn't really changed much. I mean, it's always been the same. They just look for stuff that can either new technology to integrate into products, accelerate the roadmap, or fill a gap in the portfolio, or somehow benefit the customer experience. And <clears throat> Most of these, most of the time, these are pretty small deals. And I mean, even though they've said that they consider big deals, that doesn't we haven't seen any, any really meaningful moves that actually suggest that they're seriously considering a giant deal. And I, I'd rather them keep it that way because I don't want them to blow a bunch of money just for the sake of blowing a bunch of money. Yeah, if you look at the tech space in the mer- in mergers and acquisitions specifically, uh, it is just rife in history with all of these instances of companies making really big acquisitions. 
and then subsequently in the years following making really big write downs. So so I am certainly a fan of them kind of sticking to the capital return program uh, as a way to funnel that cash somewhere. But we'll see. Um, Evan, I loved the headline for your Apple earnings take. It was Apple earnings a record quarter with mediocre guidance. Do you want to touch on what people can expect for the next quarter? Yeah, so guidance was a little soft. They're they're expecting guidance of sixty to sixty-two billion, but the street was hooking for more closer to over sixty-five. But I think the the kind of bigger issue here is what's going on with iPhone ten demand, and there's been a lot of concern, investor concern about this lately. And there were some data points that they mentioned that kind of suggest that demand isn't as good as we had hoped. The first, the most important in my mind was that they they confirmed that they achieved supply demand balance for iPhone 10 in December, which to me is way too fast. Um, they shipped iPhone 10 in November, so they caught up with demand in about a month. Like something doesn't add up there. That's dramatically context, faster than it's been historically, right? Right. For context, iPhone 7 Plus, you know, the year prior, it took about two quarters to achieve supply demand balance. And, and yeah, on one hand, Apple's been ramping production much better, faster than expected. They've been able to resolve some of these manufacturing bottlenecks around uh, the True Death camera and other other things that they've been constrained on. But even if it, they were able to really get the supply up to where it needs to be, then shouldn't they have sold more units? Like, it, it, and at the same time, you have this kind of this guidance that's less that's worse than expected. You have catching up with demand almost you know, within a month. So it really does suggest that iPhone 10 demand. You know, isn't going to be this like blockbuster super cycle, incredible, you know, like all these people have been talking about. And I mean, it probably relates back to the fact that this phone starts at a thousand dollars, you know, and goes up to eleven fifty. You add in taxes, you add in your cell phone plan, you add in if you want Apple Care because this thing's crazy expensive to repair. I mean, you could easily push fifteen hundred dollars for the phone and. That's not a lot of people are willing to pay that, especially in a world where most people don't have any wireless subsidies. You know, uh, I think in the last maybe four years or so, people have kind of had this sticker shock of realizing exactly how expensive their phones are. You know, in the past that they were maybe paying two hundred, two hundred fifty dollars for the next iPhone, um, and now they are being forced to pay seven hundred or in some cases eleven fifty for a new iPhone. Uh, that definitely will slow down the upgrade cycle quite a bit. Right, so I do think that there's there are, there are some clues that demand's not as great as people had hoped, uh, but that you know that being said, I mean, this is still a very healthy business, and uh, you know coming back to guidance, uh, there's a good part about guidance, which is the gross margin in the next quarter is forecast to be about flat at 38 to 38 and a half percent, and that's despite the loss of seasonal operating leverage. So the fact that they're able to maintain that that level of profitability despite coming off this really high revenue base is is pretty encouraging. And I think the big things that are driving that are cost improvements, as well as product mix. And the the, the comment on product mix is encouraging because that you know suggests that they're expecting a lot of people to be buying the higher end phones, which are more profitable, like iPhone 10. So you know it's not to say that iPhone 10 demand is terrible per se, but I just think that the expectations for iPhone 10 demand were really, really high, and you know maybe maybe they're not going to be as high as people had hoped, but it's still going to be a very you know healthy and solid business. Nothing to be like scared about. <laughs> Evan, I think that might be the fastest Apple earnings rundown we have ever done. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like Austin Morgan, our producer, is still awake in the studio, which is always a good sign. Um, so I think we might decide to wrap the show there. Anything else before I let you go there, Evan? I think we hit it 
quickly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com, like our favorite listener, Joseph, or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Shout out to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.